Good morning. It is so good to gather with God's people uh, on Sunday mornings. Sunday really is my favorite day of the week uh, because I love gathering with the church. I love worshiping the Lord like we talked about last week when the church gathers we're being we're living stones being built together into a dwelling place for God and God is in our midst when we gather and so what a privilege that is and today is is my my favorite Sunday in the month because we don't just get together once we get together twice for second Sunday prayer later on this evening and so I'm very much looking forward to that I'm also excited because this morning we're starting a new series uh, called the Beatitudes, Portrait of a Disciple. Uh, if you were with us this past year, you might be thinking, whatever happened to the book of Acts? Don't worry, we're going to continue on with the book of Acts. But we, uh, the elders, felt like we needed to spend these next eight weeks in the Beatitudes before we pick back up. And so that's where we're starting. Uh, the Beatitudes are found in Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 3 to 12. And it's at the beginning of the famous Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' description of what a true disciple is like and how a true disciple is to live. But it's not intended to be a standard that we need to attain to earn God's approval. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount is really uh, the opposite of that. It, it harkens back to Moses at Mount Sinai and uh, the very first verse of chapter 5, we'll read the whole text in just a second, but it it says that Jesus went up onto the mountain, and then he subsequently began to teach. And uh, this would uh, call to mind when Moses went up onto Mount Sinai, and he received the Ten Commandments, and then he came down, and he delivered the law to the people. He taught the law to the people of Israel. And so now, Jesus goes up on the mountain to preach the law of the kingdom to God's people. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, was correcting a misunderstanding of the law. He was showing the heart of God's law. The Jewish leaders and many of the Jewish people in Jesus' day often observed the law outwardly, but they were missing the point, which is to love the Lord our God with all our heart and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And even today, it's easy for us to miss the point of God's word. Because it's very possible to avoid all of the bad sins, to go to church regularly, to read your Bible, and to not have any love for God in your heart. So Jesus' aim here in the sermon is twofold, and I, I, I'm kind of borrowing this from Martin Luther. There's a twofold purpose to the Sermon on the Mount. First, it's to show non-Christians that they cannot please God so that they will flee to Jesus for justification. And secondly, it's to show Christians who have been justified by Christ how to live in a manner that's pleasing to God. So it's to show non-Christians that we can't please God in and of ourselves, and we need to flee to Jesus for justification. And it's to show Christians who have been justified with Jesus how we are now then to live in a way that pleases God as Christians. And the Beatitudes in particular are the introduction to this Sermon on the Mount. And they describe the character of a Christian. And the rest of the sermon kind of unpacks the Beatitudes or applies the Beatitudes and gives practical application on how to walk out these characteristics. And again, they're not a list of virtues to live up to so that you can earn God's favor. Rather, together, they constitute a portrait of what a true disciple of Jesus looks like. 
You can't cherry pick one. You can't say, oh, I'll, I'll hunger and thirst for righteousness and be a peacemaker, but I don't really want to be merciful. No, no, they're a package deal, and all together they paint a picture of what a true disciple looks like. So when you look at a Christian, he or she should look like the Beatitudes. Now, obviously, that's not perfectly, right? None of us perfectly embodies the Beatitudes, but we should reflect them in an ever-increasing way as we mature in Christ. And these are characteristics that, that only God, by the Holy Spirit, can bring about in us. I like how the late John Stott put, put it in his description of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. He said, the whole sermon, in fact, presupposes an acceptance of the gospel, an experience of conversion and new birth, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It describes the kind of people reborn Christians are or should be. So the Beatitudes set forth the blessings which God bestows, not as a reward for merit, but as a gift of grace upon those in whom he is working such a character. So for my part, I know that I long for my life to reflect each of these Beatitudes, and it's also my desire for the members of our church um, and that's why we're going to walk through them over the next eight weeks. Um, and as we do, I want us to, to, to plead with the Lord to make us more like each of these characteristics. And I think that you'll see why as we walk through them over the next eight weeks. So I'm going to read Matthew 5, 1 to 12, just so that we can get the context. But we're going to focus in on the first one, which is verse 3 this morning. That's going to be our text. But I want to read verses 1 to 12 uh, and pray and ask for God's help. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let me pray. God, I thank you for your word, and I pray for your help now uh, as I preach. I pray that you'd help each one of us, God. Open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your word. Change us, God. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Lord, I pray for any in this room this morning who are not poor in spirit, who have not seen their desperate need for Jesus, that today, God, they would behold you in all of your glory and magnificence and holiness, and that they would see their spiritual poverty and flee to Jesus for justification. And I pray that for those of us who have been justified, who are poor in spirit, would you make us more poor in spirit, Lord? Would you show us in an ever-increasing way that we need Jesus every single hour 
Lord, I need thee. Oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. Would that be the cry of our heart, God? Use your word to show us how true those words really are. Be with us now in these moments, God. Apart from you, we can do nothing. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This, this first beatitude is the foundation on which all of the other beatitudes are laid. And you could even argue that it's the foundation of the entire Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, and then he spends the rest of the sermon convinced, trying to convince us how poor in spirit we truly are. Without being poor in spirit, none of the other Beatitudes are really even possible. Martin Lloyd-Jones, great preacher, late preacher, said there is no one in the kingdom of God who is not poor in spirit. So if that's the case, and we see in the text that it is, then we should be very eager to ask the Holy Spirit to show us what it means to be poor in spirit and how that can be true of us. The main point of the sermon this morning is that those who recognize how desperately they need God's grace are welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. Those who recognize how desperately they need God's grace are welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. We're going to answer three questions this morning. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? How does God bless the poor in spirit? And how do you become poor in spirit? Either for the first time or how do you become more poor in spirit? So let's, let's tackle that first question. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Now the word poor is also translated beggar in Luke chapter 16, which kind of gives us the idea of what it means. But Jesus isn't referring to material poverty, but to poverty of spirit. It's a spiritual poverty. To be poor in spirit is to acknowledge our spiritual bankruptcy. It's to be a spiritual beggar. It's to admit that we are sinful and unable to please God. It's to recognize that, like Isaiah 64 says, even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before the Lord. Everything that we do is tainted by sin. It's to admit that we have nothing to offer to God which could possibly merit His favor or earn heaven or earn righteousness or forgiveness. We are spiritually bankrupt. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And that is true of every single person on the planet, whether you acknowledge it or not. And the poor in spirit that Jesus is talking about here are those who acknowledge it, to those who recognize it. And Jesus says they are blessed. The blessed means to have the favor or the approval of God. It's to have God's smiling countenance upon you and upon your life. It's, it's, some, it's a pronouncement upon those who are poor in spirit. Now saying that the poor in spirit are blessed definitely goes against the grain of culture, doesn't it? The world says, blessed are the rich. Blessed are the strong. Blessed are the beautiful. We tend to think that the kingdom of God belongs to those who earn it. We try to highlight our strengths and downplay or hide our weaknesses, don't we? Millions upon millions of dollars are made by authors and influencers, some claiming to be Christians, who preach that you're a good person at heart and that you just need to believe in yourself. It's kind of the prevailing message of the culture. 
The power of positive thinking is a popular message, and it can sell a lot of books and get a lot of podcast downloads. But what's true? What's true is that the kingdom of God belongs to those who are poor in spirit, to those who admit their helpless state and cry out to God desperately for mercy and grace. My absolute favorite picture of this in the scriptures is Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. Jesus tells the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. I want to read it. He says that he told this parable to some who, had trust, who were trusting in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And Jesus said, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee who is like a, a religious leader and teacher, and the other a tax collector who was basically like somebody who was extorting money from his own people, a cheat, a sinner. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. You can just see the disdain in his, in his eyes, right? I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then listen to how stunning verse 14 is. Don't miss just how incredible this is. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus says in that moment that the man who went to church every Sunday, the man who always gave to the poor, the man who always said his prayers at night and in the morning, the man who always was careful to keep the law of God, he went, to, he went home not justified before God. And, uh, but on the other hand, this tax collector, this cheat, this man who ex had extorted his very own people out of money, who was like in a puddle of his tears, a big mess on the ground, weeping before the Lord with nothing to offer except his tears, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. That man went home justified. That's a powerful picture. Now, how is that possible? How's that possible? It's possible because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, the law is meant to drive you into the arms of Jesus. That's the point of the Sermon on the Mount. You know, Jesus ends chapter 5 by saying, you therefore must be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Do you think that Jesus was saying that as a bet or as a dare to see which one of us could make it? No. Because we've all already failed. We've all already missed the mark. Which means we fall short. And that's the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. Is to drive that point home so that we will be driven into the arms of Christ. You need to understand that every single one of us has failed to live righteous before God many times over. We've transgressed His commands. And here's the deal. Even if you vowed from this day forward to strive to live a perfect life to obey the law of God perfectly for the rest of your life, you still couldn't atone for the sins of the many times you've already sinned against God in the past. And let's be honest, even if you made such a vow to never look with lust again, to never covet again, 
to love the Lord your God with all your heart for the rest of your life, you wouldn't be able to keep that for three minutes, let alone another 30 years. None of us could. The bottom line is that we all fall short of God's righteousness, and the law is like a mirror that shows us that. We are spiritual beggars that have nothing to bring except our neediness. But Jesus, Jesus is perfect. In verse 17, he said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill it. Jesus fulfilled the law by perfectly keeping it. He loved God the Father with all of his heart. He loved people perfectly, even his enemies. And even though he was innocent, Jesus came to die on the cross. See, not only did Jesus fulfill the law on our behalf by keeping it for us, he also took the curse of the law upon himself at the cross, the curse that you and I deserve for sinning against God again and again and again and again. And we have incurred a debt that we could never, ever, ever repay. And what we deserve is eternal condemnation, away from the presence of the Lord in eternal torment. And there was no way we could ever pay that debt. But Jesus died on the cross to pay it all. And we know that he paid it all because he's not in the grave anymore. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, which means that the debt has been paid in full. And Jesus' resurrection also means that he is able to forgive us of our sins and he is able to give us, of eternal, li to give us eternal life because he's a living Savior. If Jesus had not risen from the dead, it would just be a nice story of sacrifice that wouldn't do us any good. But he is risen from the dead, he is alive, and he is able to save you this very moment right now. Hallelujah indeed. And it's by faith in Jesus alone that his sacrifice on the cross is applied to us. And when we do that, when we despair of ourselves and we trust in Jesus, the Bible says that we're born again. God makes us a new creation. He takes his law and he writes it on our heart and he gives us a heart that wants to know him that wants to obey him, a heart that's repulsed by sin, that doesn't love sin anymore, that doesn't want to run to sin, sin begins to bother us. He causes us to begin to reflect the Beatitudes, and it wells up from within. It's no longer you striving to try to keep the law on the outside and always feeling like you're falling short. No, it's God changing you from within and making you new. He does the work. But here's the thing. What the first beatitude teaches us is that this gospel can't be received until you come to the end of yourself, until you are poor in spirit. You're very sure many of you are familiar with this verse, but Jesus says in Luke 9, 23, if anyone wants to be my disciple, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. You ever thought about, what, is that, what does that mean? What does it mean to take up my cross, to die to myself? It's, it's to despair of yourself. It's to admit that, you, have, that there's, you can't save yourself, that you need to die to every other possible avenue you could turn to to be righteous before God and cast yourself wholly and completely upon Jesus. You must despair of every other hope except for Christ. That's what that verse is teaching. But here's the thing. You won't do that if you aren't convinced of your spiritual poverty. 
No one is going to submit to the excruciating pain of radiation treatment if they aren't convinced that they have cancer and that they need it to live. Who would do that? Who would possibly volunteer to go through that? Uh, Likewise, no one's going to take up their cross and die to themselves until they know that they're a spiritual beggar. If you aren't convinced of your spiritual poverty, the gospel won't sound like good news. This is what happened to the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18. You remember that story? He came and he asked Jesus, he said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you must keep the commandments. And the rich young ruler says, oh yeah, I've done all that. I've, I've, I've been a, he's basically saying, I'm a good person. I've kept all the commands. Yep, I'm way better than all my neighbors. And Jesus says, there's still one thing that you lack. Because Jesus knew. Jesus knew that this man needed to die to deny himself, take up his cross, and to follow him. And he knew that this man was still trusting in his righteousness and in his riches. And he said, there's still one thing you lack. Go sell everything that you own and give the proceeds to the poor. And then you'll have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. And it says that the young man went away sad. He wasn't willing to do it. The cost was too high. You see, he thought that he was rich when he was actually poor. Part of him, what's, and what's concerning about this text to me, and always has been, is that part of him was enticed by Jesus. And, and he even believed in Jesus. He was even willing to follow Jesus to an extent. But he refused to see how desperately he needed Jesus, and so he did not become a disciple. But for the poor, for those who don't have it all together, the gospel is incredibly good news. If you recognize your spiritual poverty, then Matthew chapter 5, verse 3 is one of the most beautiful passages in the entire Bible. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God gives the kingdom of heaven to you who can't get your act together, to you who continue to stumble and fall over and over and over again, to you who have nothing at all to offer God except the sin that made it necessary for Jesus to die on the cross. How does God bless the poor in spirit? It's our second question. God gives the kingdom to those who know that they need him, who collapse into the arms of his grace. Just think about the ways that Jesus describes how to become a Christian in the Bible. He says, you must become like a little child. He says, you must become a servant. He says, you must die to yourself and take up your cross. The gospel is for the weak. It's for spiritual beggars. It's for the sinner who beats his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's for the one who sings, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. The kingdom of heaven with all of its indescribable blessings belongs to these. Which means that all you need to do to be qualified is to wave the white flag. It's to surrender. It's to say, Jesus, I can't do this anymore. I'm not righteous on my own. I can't change myself. I need you to forgive me and to change me and make me new. Please come into my life and have mercy on me, a sinner. And the moment that we do that, we are united to Jesus by faith, which means that all that is his becomes ours. When it says that the kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor in spirit, it literally means that we're united to Jesus 
and that all that is his becomes ours. We receive his perfect righteousness as if it is our own. We inherit everlasting life with him in the new heavens and the new earth where we are going to have a new resurrected body that will never die, that will never grow old. And best of all, we receive adoption as sons into God's family. I had somebody point out to me recently, um, Mark chapter 1, 11, and, and he, he was just sharing with me how a couple of years ago the Lord had gripped him that this verse now applies to us who are in Christ. Mark 1, 11 is when Jesus, right after he's baptized by John the Baptist, the Father, uh, the, the, uh, the Father from heaven says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Do you realize that if you are in Christ, that the Father says the same thing about you? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Why? Because you are covered in the righteousness of Jesus. Not because of anything you've done. Not because of anything I've done. We certainly don't deserve that. But that is ours. That's part of our inheritance in Jesus. This is like a tidal wave of relief for those who have been striving to please God. For those who feel like they need to perform for Him. You know, so many people come to church and tell everyone, I'm doing fine when they're asked. But some of you aren't doing fine. You're struggling with doubts, with sin, with fears, with sadness. But it's terrifying to admit it because then the image you've been portraying has to come down. But what you need most is for that facade to come crashing down, to admit that you are actually poor in spirit. And the gospel is what makes it safe to do so. The gospel is what makes it safe for us to be able to admit, yeah, I don't have it all together. Yeah, I'm struggling with this besetting sin. Yeah, I'm struggling with doubts. Yeah, I'm struggling with depression. And I don't know how I can continue making it. I'm struggling to lead my family. I'm struggling to love my children. Are you ready to wave the white flag? Have you hit spiritual rock bottom? You must if you want to enter into the kingdom of God. And you can today. In this very moment, you can cry out to him in your heart, save me. Save me, Jesus. I want Pillar San Antonio to always be a church where it's normal to be poor in spirit. That doesn't mean that everyone walks around feeling bad about ourselves or like kicking ourselves it means thinking realistically about ourselves we know we're sinful and all of our boast is in jesus not in ourselves this should be the safest place in the world to admit that we're not okay because we're all poor in spirit you've probably heard uh, so many of you probably heard the analogy before that the church is not a, a museum it's a hospital right not a museum to put on display perfect people it's a hospital for spiritually sick people for people that need help. I want to challenge us all to do two things in light of this. First of all, when you come to life group or when you come to Sunday morning service and somebody asks you, how are you doing? Be honest. Can you just be honest? Let other believers help you bear your burdens. If you're doing great, then awesome. Tell us, tell us why. 
tell us why you're doing great. We all need the encouragement. I, I want to be encouraged. If you're doing great, then testify. Tell me what's, what God's doing in your life. And if you're not, be honest so that we can pray for you, so that we can bear those burdens. And on the flip side of that, when you come to worship on Sunday morning or when you come to life group, look for someone that you can encourage. Go up to somebody or to multiple people and ask them, hey, how are you doing? How are you really doing? Look for ways that you can pray for others. Look for ways that you can serve others. Who doesn't want our church to look more and more like this? To be a place where we can be honest with each other, where we can bear one another's burdens, where we're praying for each other on Sunday mornings, where we're looking for ways to serve for each other. Does anybody else want to be in a church like that? I know I do. Amen? Now this leads to one final question. How do you cultivate being poor in spirit? How do you become poor in spirit for the first time? And how do you become more poor in spirit if you are poor in spirit? And by the way, every Christian should want to become more poor in spirit. We should all want to grow in all of the Beatitudes. So let's answer this last question. Now, I want to start by saying that no matter who you are, the, the overarching answer is not to try harder, okay? It's to collapse into the arms of Jesus. You can't try harder to be poor in spirit. It's God who cultivates these beatitudes in our hearts. And there's two particular ways that he does that that I'll mention. One is active on our part and one is passive. So actively, we become poor in spirit by beholding God in his glory. It's impossible to behold the glory of God, to gaze on his beauty, and then to be full of yourself. When we find ourselves in the presence of Almighty God, we're going to be humbled before him. Because not only do we see how glorious he is, but how beautiful he is, but it's a reminder that we are not like him. He is God and we're not. Uh, in Luke chapter 5, Jesus uh, asked this fisherman, that he had just met named Simon Peter, if he could use his boat to preach from because the crowds were pressing in. And so Peter lets Jesus get into the boat and Jesus preaches from the boat. And after he's done teaching, he tells Simon, he says, hey, let out your, your boat into deeper waters and let, out your, let down your nets for a catch. And Simon says, teacher, we've been fishing all day and we didn't catch a single thing. They're, the fish just aren't biting today. But if you say so, at your word, we'll go ahead and we'll let down the nets. And so they go out. And they throw the nets out, and immediately, as soon as the nets hit the water, they begin to fill up with fish. And the nets were so full of fish that they were breaking, and the boats began to sink. That's how many fish. They were, you ever heard that if, if anybody goes fishing, you've heard it like the fish are just jumping into the boat? Well, that was literally happening. The fish are literally jumping into the boat and sinking the boat. And Peter realizes in that moment that he's not in the presence of a man. Peter realizes he's in the presence of God. And what does he do? Luke 5, 8, it says, When Peter, Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees and say, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Right? What was Peter's response when he saw the glory of God in Christ? He recognized his unworthiness. He became poor in spirit like that. The way we become poor in spirit is to look to God. And the primary way that we look to God is we look to God in his word. God's word is living and active, and he speaks to us through his word. 
I, we, we, we say this often, but it's so important. Read and meditate on the Bible. As you do, as you read the Bible, not because you're supposed to, but because you want to meet with God, your confidence in God will grow and you will more and more see that you have no reason to be confident in yourself, but every reason to be confident in him. You'll become poor in spirit and more reliant on him. So we become poor in spirit by beholding God in his glory. But God also, in a passive way, makes us poor in spirit through suffering and weakness. God will often ordain suffering and physical weaknesses to teach us to become more reliant on him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul was writing to the Corinthians and he was relating to them uh, some of the persecutions and sufferings that they had endured and he made this point. He said, uh, he said, I want you to know of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Did you see that purpose statement in there? Why did they... Feel, why did God bring them to a point where they felt they had received the sentence of death? So that they would not rely on themselves, but on God who raises the dead. Suffering exposes just how weak our flesh is. Typically, when we suffer, it brings out the worst parts of our hearts. We throw our biggest spiritual temper tantrums whenever we're suffering. And going through hardship. Uh, a few years ago, we adopted three children, our three oldest children, and we so we went from zero to three. And doing that um, has exposed sin in my heart that I was horrified to find. There was deep-rooted anger and selfishness that I did not even know was there. It was always there, but the pressure of suffering squeezed it out of me and made it come to the surface. And that was kind of um, unsettling for me, honestly. It really was, especially early on. But boy, did it ever drive Jen and I into the arms of Jesus. It's made us more reliant on him. It's caused us to cling to him more and more. This is why the Bible teaches us that we can rejoice in our sufferings. It's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 10, that I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses. Through suffering and weakness, God teaches us that he is all that we need. We're poor and needy, and we just need to come to him over and over and over again. What's God using in your life? A career setback, chronic pain, a disease depression, physical limitations, persecution, family hardships, whatever it is, don't despise your sufferings and weaknesses. Boast in them. See how God is at work in them to make you ever more poor in spirit. And that poverty of spirit is the pathway to the kingdom of heaven when all of our suffering and weaknesses will be reversed forever. God is 
is working through these sufferings. He's working through these weaknesses. They are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. By the way, that's like three times I've mentioned 2 Corinthians. So if you're struggling with suffering, book of the Bible you should go read, read 2 Corinthians. You know, guys, what I've discovered is that poverty of spirit and humility are probably the most important markers of spiritual health that there are. It's the number one, it's the number one fruit. It's like the first fruit you should see on the tree of a Christian. If those things aren't there, then it causes serious doubt on whether somebody actually is a Christian or not. Because the very first thing that ought to happen in our hearts is we ought to realize just how desperately we need Jesus. That's the whole point of the gospel. That's the whole point. Humility. Poverty of spirit. You know, we tend to think that as you mature, you should become more independent. And physically, like in, in life, that's what happens. As your children grow... They become more independent, they become less needy, they do things on their own. But I've discovered that the more that you mature spiritually, the more dependent on Jesus you become. The longer I walk with Jesus, the more I realize I desperately need him every single second for every single thing. I find myself longing to spend more time in God's word more time in prayer, not to impress God, not because I think I'm better than anybody else, none of those things, because I know how weak I am and that I will literally fall apart if I don't. I desperately need God. Your confidence as you mature in yourself wanes, but your confidence in God increases exponentially. And, and this brings about indescribable joy and relief because while we are fighting sin, we're fighting from a place of victory that Jesus has won on our behalf. It's not the strongest or the fastest or the richest who on the last day will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's those who collapse at the feet of Jesus, the poor in spirit. And in some ways, the path of discipleship is a continual collapsing at his feet again and again until finally we look up and Jesus has carried us all the way to the finish line. And we're going to enter into our rest. And the way there is to keep collapsing at his feet.